Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of Immersive Podcasts, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders that it's fostering. I'm your host, Alex, and today I'm joined with my co-host, Nicole. Hey, everyone. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Belotis. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at MAC, and she's also a faculty associate with the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medical Cannabis Research. She's also a member of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research, and she's a director of the Integrated Neuroscience of Motivation and Change Lab. So Dr. Belotis, can you please start off by just telling our listeners a bit about yourself, maybe talk about your research background and interests and perhaps what inspired you to delve into this field of research? Yeah, so thank you very much for having me here today. Um, as a researcher, I'm always happy to, to have an audience who wants to hear about the projects that, uh, that we're doing. Um, yeah, so my research interests really revolve around, I would say, motivational pathologies and decision making. So uh, why, why we choose to make the decisions that we make in a very basic way. Um, and one of the ways I approach that is by looking at when we make poor decisions. Um, and one group in which we can look at poor decision making is uh, often in individuals with substance use disorders. So for example, choosing the brief high of a drug over you know, the long-term benefits of having uh, you know, your health, having good relationships, a job, et cetera. So to, to look at this question um, and study motivation, which if you think about it, is a very difficult thing to study. We all know what motivation is, but, but how do you measure it? How do I know that you're at 50% motivation or at 100% and, and what exactly is it? So to do that, I try and uh, use different tasks that tap into different aspects of motivation and also different methodologies too. So I can, for example, just do self-report measures, ask someone, you know, how motivated do you think you are? Uh, I can look at tasks. Uh, how, how much are you willing to, for example, lever press to get $2, to get $10? And then uh, I can also put you in a brain scanner and, uh, and look at what's happening in your brain as you weigh different decisions on, you know, do I, do I wanna work for this reward or is this valuable to me? So I try and use different methodologies to look at different questions. And for example, for some things, neuroimaging might make the most sense. And for others, it, it may not. Um, so you sort of have to tailor your, your methods to the specific questions that you have. So overall, my, my interests are in um, right now looking at several different populations, some of them that you think about with substance use disorders and some that are, I guess, less traditional. Uh, so one of the groups that I'm currently working with is individuals with cannabis use disorder. Uh, and I also have a, uh, an interest for many years in understanding people that gamble a lot. So um, people with, for example, gambling disorder or, or just problematic gambling as well. Uh, and then some of my other research interests delve into aspects of uh, binge eating disorder. And of course, eating is not an addiction, 
but there are aspects of, uh, of eating that tap into similar constructs that we see in substance use disorders. So I try and look across disorders at aspects of stress and reward processing and see how they might be similar and different across substance use disorders, non-substance use disorders, and things that we don't necessarily consider addictions. That's in a perfect. nutshell. <laughs> yeah. That, that's perfect. We we were actually uh, planning on talking to you about everything that you just mentioned now. So so we want to discuss uh, in a bit more depth your research on uh, non-substance abuse disorders, substance abuse disorders, and then impulse control. So binge eating as well. Uh, but before we we jump into that, uh, would you be able to to give us sort of a background in uh, what addiction means from a neuroscience perspective. So, so what is your understanding of addiction from that neuroscience uh, point of view? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think from a neuroscience point of view, uh, I try and think about addiction if I'm if I'm looking very broadly um, at. Um, at different aspects of cognitive control, of inhibitory control, sort of higher level processing that occurs in the brain uh, in competition often with lower level processing related to acute rewards, for example. So again, that, that high of a, a drug um, and then cognitive mechanisms um, that we have to control it. So for example, how, how much we drink, knowing you have to go to school the next day or, or work. Um, so how, how do those brakes and pedals, so to speak, work? And we know from lots of neuroimaging research that, uh, that there are circuits in the brain that seem to underlie aspects of inhibitory control, uh, mo attention monitoring, and then those that are uh, involved in basic aspects of reward uh, as well, and sort of seeing how these two interact and uh, and lead to us making good or, or poor decisions. Yeah, that's interesting. Honestly, one thing that I've always wondered is when it comes to trying to stop addictions and kind of stop these bad behaviors, why is it so hard and why is there often a disconnect between our desires and our actual behaviors? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's the crux of addiction. And I think that's what makes it so difficult to understand and study because uh, someone, for example, who uh, has a problem with alcohol, they, or gambling, it doesn't matter what you choose, um, they, they will say and completely mean that they don't, they don't want to continue on this path. They don't want to continue drinking. They often say, I don't even like it anymore. I don't even really get high from it. But what the crux of it is, is that there's this deep craving for it. Um, for the drug. And, and that's often as researchers, what we're interested in understanding is where, what are these urges and how do they sort of hijack your decision-making process? So they know individuals with substance use problems know what the right answer is. They know I should just stop taking this. I've lost my job. I've lost my family, but they can't do it. So it's that distinction between knowing and doing. Uh, and that's that's where the difficulty in studying uh, addictions lies. And that's why you can't just necessarily ask someone for their opinion and what the right answer is. Um, often we need to look at tasks where we get into different aspects of behavior because people often act very differently than than what they say. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think you, you mentioned a great point where uh, people might notice the, the detriments of their behaviors and, and yet they still pursue that addiction. Uh, and you mentioned it in, in the context of alcohol abuse, but in a non-substance abuse perspective, so, so gambling, uh, which you mentioned was the main focus of your non-substance abuse research, we were just wondering if, if you could sort of explain uh, your research on non-substance abuse uh, and how that's developed in recent years. Yeah, so uh, I think gam gambling has always been an interest of mine because it is non-substance based and it's the first recognized um, non-substance based disorder. And so I always think of gambling as a way to look at the brain without having a substance on board. So when you look at brain scans from someone who has been consuming alcohol for 30 years very heavily, uh, you don't need to be a neurologist to see that their brains look very, very different. There's a lot of atrophy. There's a lot of uh, things that happen after heavy uh, alcohol use for many years. Um, so one of the problems as researchers is you don't know if it's a chicken or an egg effect, how much relates to the actual substance and how much relates to uh, perhaps differences that were there to begin with. Uh, with. With gambling, we can look at the brain and say that it's non-substance based. That's not to say that gambling doesn't have an effect on the brain and, and that gambling may change the brain in, in, in some ways as well but we don't have the same neurotoxicity with uh, that we need to deal with when we look at gambling. And so some of the work that I did uh, used similar tasks to look at reward processing in individuals with gambling disorder and compared it to healthy controls. And we found very similar, very similar differences to those that had been shown in substance-based disorders. So showing, um, showing, for example, uh, uh, less activity in ventral striatal areas when you're uh, anticipating rewards. And what this starts to show us is what mechanisms may be unique to addictive behaviors or, or, or addic addictive processes and which may be uh, related to more substance-based um, uh, issues, so neurotoxicity. And we can start to hone in on what, uh, what is predominantly uh, what might be shared between these conditions and what might lead to this um, uh, th this bad decision making that we see this chronic sort of repeated uh, poor choices uh, in favor of a, a substance or a drug over over longer term rewards. Definitely. And, and I think you mentioned uh, something that, that we wanted to touch on as well. You, you mentioned the the uh, impact on the ventral striatal activity. Uh, and for our listeners, would, would you be able to just give us a little bit more information on how that uh, is linked with addictions? Yeah, so the ventral striatum is this area of the brain um, that is basically a projection site for many, many dopamine neurons that you have. And so most drugs of abuse have their effect by having tons of dopamine released in the ventral striatum. And there's an even smaller area of the ventral striatum called the nucleus accumbens, which may, some people may have heard of as well. Um, so there's tons of dopamine being released there during, well, during many rewarding behaviors. So uh, sex, eating, uh, substances, lots of things. Uh, but in the case of substances, it's so, it's, 
it's it's projected there's uh dopamine release you know 10 100 times what you would normally have and so you can quickly understand how this would hijack these rewards circuits in the brain if you're getting you know 10 to 100 times more than what you normally uh would when you you know do a a, a sort of normal pleasurable activity um so the the release of dopamine in these areas uh in the the ventral striatum in particular um is uh is key in in the rewarding properties of drugs but the the ventral striatum is highly network to many areas of the brain. So it gets, as I said, it has dopamine, uh, it's a dopamine project, projection site, but it also has lots of connections to uh, areas of the brain like the prefrontal cortex. It has connections with the hippocampus, with amygdala. So it, it plays this central role in linking to higher cognitive functions and also motor functions. People often don't think of, um, of dopamine and the striatum in terms of motor aspects, um, but very basic movements relate to um, striatal functioning as well. So it's really this integral part of uh, of this network that that controls so much of what we do with reward and with movement. Thank you for clarifying that and for providing more background on the structure. So we just kind of wanted to also talk about some of your projects related to non-substance abuse disorders. So we saw that you've established this Brain Connections Initiative. We wanted to just hear more about that. We yeah. understand that it's a tool that you've created to help people who are struggling with gambling addictions. And we just kind of want to know, first of all, the background behind this project and perhaps what made you want to establish it and what are some of the effects now that you're noticing if you've gotten any feedback, if you've applied this project perhaps in hospitals or private settings. Yeah. So Brain Connections was uh, a collaboration um, that uh, I did with a counselor at ADGS Hamilton, which is Alcohol, Drug and Gambling Services of Hamilton. And I think as a researcher, one of the most important things you can do is, is not stay in the lab, but talk to other people uh, from all different walks of life. And I think, um, Connecting with people at ADGS, in particular, uh, Deirdre Corney, who's a, a counselor there, was uh, amazing in, in that uh, she had tons of questions uh, for a researcher. And I have tons of questions for her as well, because she's at the front lines running treatment groups, seeing clients, you know, all day for, for over 20 years. So we got together and she had very specific questions uh, about the brain and gambling that she gets asked by many of her clients. And the thing is, is gambling was sort of, uh, gambling research was sort of in its infancy for, for many years in terms of understanding the neurobiology. But I would say in the past uh, 10, 15 years, we've started to get a much better idea of what's happening. And it's important to share that information beyond just other people doing uh, brain research. And so some of the questions that she had, we, we could answer. So we sat down together and it's, it's now when you, you know, if you look at brainconnections.ca, it just looks like, well, I think a fun, nice website. Uh, it took a lot of work to, to think about what are questions. Um, these actually came from clients. We didn't make them up ourselves. Uh, what are 
questions that we can answer with the science that is currently available and can we make it digestible and it's it's very difficult because as a researcher I get used to my own lingo and and everything's gray and we talk and you know this may or may not be related to but but that's what what we ultimately want to do is have our research impact people and so sitting down with uh with a clinician and and you know really hashing out what's meaningful what can I take from this so now we've developed for example handouts that she can work with or, or clinicians can work with clients if they have specific questions about the brain um, so for example why can't I stop thinking about gambling um, how is this similar to other addictions actually questions that we've just sort of covered now as well uh, so we tried to take very current literature and um, and make it in digestible form that they can they can read a little bit about it then there's like an interactive component and then there's sort of follow-up questions that they can think about how this relates to their own life uh, and so this is it's i can't uh i can't accent enough how how difficult it is to do this work when you read it it sounds so simple and it's it's really you know Deirdre and I going back and forth for for quite a while like does this make sense okay what about this and then we reread it a week later and none of it makes sense and going back and and um and and in the end getting a a product uh so these handouts that uh, are used in uh, in therapy sessions now, and and we've done a bunch of podcasts, we've done webinars, we've gone to conferences all across now North America. Um, well, not in the past year, but uh, but uh, but done a few things on presenting the data to different audiences, including clinicians. And one of the the most rewarding things uh, I heard was in one of the sessions, someone was asking specifically, you know, in my groups, I like to do the handouts like this and, and bring them up at this point of therapy. And, and it just hit me like this, you know, this little handout thing that we developed is, is being used in different ways and, and supplementing uh, therapies that are ongoing and, and yeah, providing other information. So that was, highly rewarding so so conducting knowledge translation activities is important it's difficult but very very rewarding absolutely and and i think you touched on such a key point there because research will always be valuable but unless you can translate that knowledge to to the lay audience it, it can remain inaccessible um and i guess what you've managed to do is is with that knowledge translation, you've brought it to therapy sessions. You're you're able to implement it into into helping people get better, uh, and and fight their addictions. So I also wanted to to link that to a recent review paper that you talked about, where you mentioned that there are cultural differences uh, in these addictions. So you had one review paper that looked at uh, gambling uh, addicts in in the U.S. compared to those in Spain. And you mentioned that there are socioeconomic uh, differences, there are cultural differences. Um, and so you can't really inform policies without looking at that particular jurisdiction. And I was wondering if your current knowledge translation with Brain Connections or in any other initiative that you have, if that has helped you uh, sort of inform policies within your, your jurisdiction, or if you aim to do that in the future. Ooh, your question is so spot on. Um, yeah, so actually, right after this uh, 
this meeting, I have another meeting with um, some members of the OGRS, the Ontario Gambling Research Society, which we started up a few years ago now. Um, and we're still we're still small growing group of researchers conducting um, research in in gambling in very different ways across Ontario. One of the things um, that's come up very recently is uh, Ontario is now proposing an iGaming model, uh, which is developing many more gaming and gambling uh, venues online. And it's gambling is a huge, huge revenue for the province, for the country, but I've, uh, I'll speak more knowledgeably about Ontario in particular. And um, so we have a meeting with them as well as um, some, some related institutions about how this uh, iGaming model is going to be, um, is basically going to be developed. So um, asking them to consider whether, uh, what research they are considering in developing the model. Uh, are they thinking about the impacts beyond uh, just budgetary ones or, or beyond financial ones? There's, there are many impacts, both good and bad on society in terms of interpersonally, uh, regionally, culturally, uh, and those those are not uh, often easily deduced just through uh, dollars spent or dollars earned. Uh, and so understanding that when something like this uh, is launched is uh, is very important. So uh, so we have a meeting um, coming up now in April. Um, and so as a researcher, I never thought I'd get into policy or regulation or anything, but you have to be able to take on many hats and do many things and you know just keep talking with your neighbors and colleagues and 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 it's amazing what you do find out and, and how you can move forward so even you know forming a society I don't I, what is a society is, is there an official thing there there actually is we had to get you know lawyers involved get uh, people across different universities to join to, to make a society that is now, you know, credibly, I hope, going to make a difference in the gambling research field across Ontario. Exactly. And, and I think you also mentioned another thing uh, there where in, in gaming, they're starting to incorporate the, these gambling uh, incentives. So loot boxes or packs where you basically, you, you pay to win, but you also pay to find out if you're going to win. Um, and I wanted to ask if that sort of incentive that they, they create for adolescents, do you think that there is uh, some sort of uh, neurobiological uh, formation happening that can contribute to them developing gambling addictions further down the line? Yeah, I think, I do think uh, there needs to be a lot more research in this area. We, we've known now for quite a few years that gambling and gaming features are starting to fuse together. And I think it'll be less and less, or it'll be, uh, yeah, more and more difficult to separate them in the next few years, because you have these elements of gambling that are coming up in insidious ways in gaming and, and vice versa as well. Uh, there's a lot of gamification of different gambling aspects too. So, um, so I think understanding those particularly in kids, because we know that motivational neurocircuitry is developing during adolescence in particular. Uh, and we know that kids have a different relationship with money um, 
often they can they, they don't care about it or they have easy access through their parents or uh or their points just point system and winning is very is, is very ex much more exciting to a young person often than uh than to older individuals so understanding what happens when they have big wins and when they play you know six to ten hours a day what what influence does that have on your reward sensitivity on choices that you make um on you know development of, of other aspects of of your uh personality and 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 mood effects etc so those are all just just starting to come out yeah it definitely sounds like video games could are definitely merging with gambling in a way that could have detrimental effects on the development of adolescence and we should be aware of that and it sounds like you're trying to raise awareness about that and we were just wondering if you think maybe these types of gambling incentives in video games should be prohibited or regulated in some sort of way? What are some alternatives maybe that could be used in place of what's happening now so that adolescents don't experience these adverse effects that you just talked about? It's hard. It's it's hard to say. Again, I'm not a, a policymaker, a regulator. I, I do think we need a lot more research into understanding particularly youth gambling and and brain effects as well there's very few neuroimaging studies in this field in youth and then especially longitudinally to look at changes in the brain and not all of them could are necessarily bad we know that certain aspects of gaming are being used in different types of therapies um, and can be very engaging the the problem with it is is that most researchers can't make games that are as exciting as you know the gaming industry can we don't have 10 million dollars to throw at a game we have you know maybe a thousand dollars and you get you know a very cheesy program that looks whatever and, and is not engaging so uh so even understanding how gaming could be used in a in a in an advantageous context for, for training or for therapy, uh, it still needs to be better researched as well. Um, so, so yeah, at this point, I think it's, it's hard to, to, to say exactly what the direction is, but I think, yeah, I think we need to understand the phenomenon better. Definitely. And specific features as well of gambling and gaming um, that come up very often. So, um, so I think there's there's some in the literature, for example, in gambling, loss chasing, losses disguised as wins. There's and we talk about some of these as well on the Brain Connections website. Uh, and one of those where we discuss gambling features is actually the most popular uh, download. So there's brochures that we've made as well. Uh, and so we can see what's looked at the most. And it's the one where we talk about gambling features uh, that seems to be of most interest to people. So um, yeah, losses disguised as wins, things like that. Definitely. And, and I do think that uh, moving forward, if there are longitudinal studies that, that look at that exact thing, it, it really would elucidate the, the, the adverse effects, but also the, the benefits of using uh, video games um, in, in adolescence. But sort of now to, to transition to your research on uh, substance use uh, disorders, 
there, there was a lot of research that, that you've previously published that sort of looked at the, the overlaps and the similarities in how non-substance uh, abuse disorder or non-substance use disorders and substance use disorders share similarities. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on where that overlap is neurobiologically. Oh, that's a good question. So, yeah, so uh, actually I have a paper that I've been working on for a while looking at that aspect. And we see, um, we see overlap in areas that I've mentioned, like the ventral striatum. Um, we see areas of overlap in, um, uh, in areas like uh, certain areas of the prefrontal cortex. So ventral medial prefrontal cortex areas that are involved in coding for the saliency of a reward. So how, how much value is something to you at this moment? Uh, you can see overlap in, in those areas as well. Um, there are some differences that are noted as well. And I think that's important too, as I said, for, for different reasons to distinguish perhaps what relates more to neurotoxicity of, of sub certain substances. Um, and in gambling disorder, the, um, the differences in dopamine that have been well-documented across many substance use disorders have not been found. So the idea of, uh, for example, down-regulated dopamine receptors in opiates, uh, um, in people with opiate use disorders or cocaine use disorders, that has not been documented as well in, in, um, in gambling, for example, in humans. Okay, thank you for sharing that. We actually wanted to transition specifically into your research on cannabis because as you see you have a lot of work on this particular field. We also see that you started a course with some of your colleagues called the Signs of Cannabis course. So we were just wondering if you could start off by just giving a brief overview of the mechanism behind cannabis and kind of how it acts on certain brain regions and what those effects are. Yeah. So cannabis, like, like most other drugs works, um, uh, a lot of the rewarding effects occur in ventral striatal areas as well. Um, but cannabis uh, is a drug that um, targets the cannabinoid receptors in the brain, which are very, very widespread. So much more widespread than other neurotransmitter systems. Um, and so that's why cannabis has many other uh, effects on the, the body and the brain. So there's also, um, we know, effects on memory. Um, there are um, some changes, for example, in the hippocampus that are noticed related to, for example, how long you've been taking cannabis. So yeah, as, as, excuse me. <clears throat> um, as researchers, we're I, I can say we're very much still at, a, at an early stage of understanding cannabis and how complicated it is. And it's, uh, I've learned this through not just the research, but the courses that, that we teach as well, how polarizing the topic is. People usually have a very firm opinion already that, you know, this is the best drug in the world, or, you know, this is the worst drug in the world, it ruined my life. Um, and there's very, the, the research that exists on it is, uh, is nowhere near that polarizing and there's very little of it, to be honest. Uh, and so in the courses, we, we review and discuss what, what is and isn't known. And what becomes clear is that 
there have been so many changes in the past few decades related to cannabis. So for example, rising potency rates. So uh, studies that were done in the 70s and 80s, first of all, there weren't many on cannabis because people were more interested in other substances like cocaine and opiates. But those that were done, were done, you know, sometimes on two people smoking two or three percent THC cigarettes, um, which is not what people are using now. Uh, it's we have uh, potency rates often twelve percent. You have people using butter and shatter at you know sixty percent, seventy percent THC. These are imagine. Um, I always give the analogy of drinking a pint of light beer of let's say three percent beer. You could, you could drive a car after, you could probably do lots of things, you could speak fairly normally. Now imagine doing that after a pint of vodka or a pint of even wine at 12%. Uh, driving is, is not going to, to be good. Um, walking, talking, all those things. So uh, understanding cannabis is really still at its infancy and uh, understanding, for example, some of the therapeutic effects that are touted uh, is very complicated as well. So it's a it's a very polarizing area. And uh, as I said, the research is kind of gray because people use different, not just different potencies, I've just touched on one aspect. Uh, there are hundreds of different cannabinoids and we mostly talk about THC. Some people have heard of CBD now, but there's a hundred others that are interacting in ways that we don't even know. Uh, and so some of these, uh, the, the idea of systematically understanding, you know, 12% THC with 2% CBD, someone else takes 10% CBD with 2% THC. And then there's, you know, a million, when you think about how complicated it is, uh, it's, it can be, it can be overwhelming. So we have to try and be cautious and, and really, um, really open your ears to the, to the research and what's out there and not, not the hype, um, that's my long-winded answer. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and I think what, what you've mentioned there, um, it, it, it sort of goes to show the intricacies of it. And, and again, with your Science of Cannabis course, uh, you delve into some of the therapeutic applications of it. And I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on what those therapeutic applications actually are. So that I'm a little bit less well-versed on, but, um, but people um, talk often about therapeutic aspects related to, um, for example, pain and pain management. Um, and so there are studies now looking at comparisons with uh, opiates versus uh, cannabis for pain. Uh, there is good documentation for uh, cannabis helping in um, specific cases of epilepsy, so reducing seizures. And as I mentioned, there are cannabinoid, endocannabinoid receptors throughout the body and the brain. And so it's not surprising that cannabis would have really, really widespread effects uh, on everything from, you know, neural functioning to digestion to pain and, and to interactions between the body and the brain as well. Um, so I think those have to be well researched as well. And I think, again, it's, it's just starting out. Often when you see um, studies on pain, uh, they're not that well done. For example, they may not have a control condition. They don't necessarily direct. They just ask people to report um, you know, their pain levels. 
uh, on effects on sleep, they often ask people, oh, do you sleep better or worse? There, there are other mechanisms that you can, or ways to look at questions around sleep where you can actually look at sleep patterns using EEG, things like that to, to really understand what might be happening. Um, and I think, again, as an addiction researcher, um, cannabis is, is addictive. And so we do, you do have to be careful uh, how you use it the same way we have to be careful with, with other drugs as well. And so sometimes the, um, the intoxicating, and I've seen this multiple times in, in things that are published on, on uh, different websites and what some, some people will say is they, they misinterpret some of the intoxicating effects of um, cannabis for therapeutic ones. So for example, feeling less anxious. Well, that's, that's an intoxicating effect. Alcohol also makes you less anxious if you, if you drink a few glasses of, uh, of beer or wine. So I think understanding, um, making these distinctions and, and yeah, and listening to the science, I think is, is what's going to have to happen. And I think in the next few years, there will be more clarification as to what the therapeutic effects uh, are. Uh, and a lot of it may relate to the complexity of the cannabinoids interacting. So you'll you probably hear lots about CBD ratios to THC, and and there's starting to be more talk about other cannabinoids and terpenes and how they interact as well. And and that may be where uh, where we elucidate more of the effects. That's really interesting research, and I honestly only knew about CBD and THC, and I didn't realize how many other cannabinoids there were and how much research, I guess, there still is to be done in this area, and that makes me think about the risks and what we know about the risks of cannabis use and potentially what are some of the things we haven't even discovered yet, and I guess that would only be accomplished with more long-term studies, I think, as Alex mentioned earlier. Uh, I think you sort of answered my question, but I, I just wanted to know a little bit about how cannabis addiction develops and what that mechanism is, and if you could maybe expand on that. Yeah, so I think for years people mentioned that cannabis isn't addictive, and it was one of the few drugs that aren't, and, and if you go back far enough in time, people said that about cocaine as well. Um, and slowly, uh, there is more and more recognition that you can be addicted to cannabis, um, and it can affect multiple aspects of your life as well. Um, I think what's a bit less typical with cannabis is the withdrawal syndrome tends to be a little bit delayed and um, THC tends to sit longer in fat. It's fat soluble, tends to sit longer in the body. And so the, I think the acute withdrawal effects are not as uh, obvious and, um, uh, and distinct as what's often seen with other substances, but it, it definitely does exist. Uh, the withdrawal syndrome does exist affecting mood, irritability, uh, cognitive effects, sleeping, um, uh, sleep disturbances, uh, eating disturbances, which again speaks to how widespread cannabis effects are on, on the body. Um, so yeah, I think we're still at a, at a point of, of understanding exactly the different uh, phases as someone starts to use more uh, and um, yeah, and characterizing those as well. Definitely. And I think just there, you, you also touched on, uh, on 
the the addiction of other drugs and and how cannabis is only just uh, being brought up into the discussion recently. But I was wondering more so for your research, what other drugs are you interested in? So so aside from cannabis, um, I know that recently you also published a paper uh, looking at cocaine addiction, and I was wondering if uh, like where that research is progressing, but also if there are any other drugs that you're looking into uh, going forward. Yeah, so I'm interested in. I guess lots lots of different substances. I did. Uh, there was a study with um, uh, individuals with cocaine use disorder that we did, in particular, to understand the effects of abstinence. So, looking at the opposite, what happens to the brain after you stop using, which is sort of um, not been well researched. Everyone is like, "This is your brain on drugs," but but lots of people stop using and and recover. And and what does that what does that mean? What does that look like? So that was the inspiration behind the the cannabis use disorder study. Um, I'm not. I'm interested on on I guess more of a high high level of. Uh, of substances less specific, the pharmacokinetics of what, for example, cocaine versus cannabis is doing. Um, what I'm probably more interested in is, uh, is the interaction of substances and behaviors. And that's probably, that is where my research is going. So, um, so people very rarely just use one substance. Often, for example, if you're smoking pot you're uh sipping a beer as well or or uh or um we're for example working on a study right now showing um now as people are home more obviously because of the pandemic we're doing many more things online and that uh we're, we're looking at gambling behaviors and co-use of substances so people that endorse uh using cannabis and alcohol um excuse me, sometimes just each or sometimes uh, all at the same time, what other substances and how does that affect the decisions we make? Because uh, even if you look at, for example, um, DUIs with cannabis, it's very rare that they're, it's pure as someone has just been using cannabis. Most um, reports often show that there's alcohol and or other substances on board as well. Um, so, so just focusing in on one substance isn't necessarily the way to go. I think trying to understand how they're used together, why, and what the effects are is, is important. And one of the interesting things that was um, replicated a few times in the cannabis literature is that when you take very low levels of cannabis, uh, and they're combined with very low levels of alcohol, the, your blood THC is actually much higher than what you actually consume. So even if you think, oh, you know what, I'm actually below the legal limit, I just had a little bit. Once you combine it with another drug, there are very potent effects that change the way, not just you think and behave, but physiologically, if you're tested, you may say, you know what, I actually didn't have that much. And your physiology will show something very different, um, which is interesting to understand, to, to think about as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is really interesting. And actually, your point about the interactions of different substances and how they influence behaviors ties in perfectly to our last topic about binge eating, because we saw that you published a paper about the interactions between food addiction and substance abuse disorders. In particular, I think you talked about alcohol misuse food addiction and how these, both of these, I guess, substances or behaviors are related to impulse control. 
So I'm just wondering if you could talk about that and perhaps maybe the neurobiological mechanism behind impulse control and what areas of the brain are involved in that response. Yeah, so yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm very interested in potential overlap between uh, different conditions. And I think binge eating disorder, which affects a lot of people, uh, more people than those with anorexia and bulimia combined, um, is, is something that uh, we're, we struggle with as a society. Um, it's this binge eating disorders associated with higher rates of obesity. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm very interested in understanding, is there overlap in mechanisms like uh, impulse control, as you mentioned? And I think we do see uh, from a neurobiological level, um, we do see similarities in, um, again, for example, uh, uh, um, decreased uh, anticipatory reward processing when looking at cues for monetary reward, which is a, uh, a way to say, um, these are some, some studies that we did that showed uh, basically alterations in reward processing that are non-food related. Um, and uh, yeah, so some of these are similar. Uh, we see in uh, binge eating disorder, um, heightened cue reactivity to food cues, uh, both uh, on a neurobiological level, behaviorally as well. And um, those are similar to the same way in substance use disorders. You see in an individual with gambling disorder is very quick to recognize gambling related um, phenomenology. They'll notice you know, signs for a casino opening up before they notice that a new restaurant is opening up next door to them. Um, so there's a lot of I can't talk phenomenological similarities uh, across these, um, these conditions. The idea of food addiction is still quite controversial uh, and needs to be, I think, researched uh, quite, quite a bit more. Um, but again, there, there are ideas that this loss of control um, when you're faced with a substance is often um, quite similarly described in individuals uh, that meet criteria for food addiction. Uh, and what we see in substance use disorder. So this, you know, um, uh, saliency of food cues, uh, thinking about food all the time, often binging as well, um, the way it sort of hijacks your, your attention and, and the choices that you make. Uh, and again, this knowing, knowing the right thing to do and, and not being able to do it. And there's a lot of shame associated with it. I think with substance use disorders, there's a lot more understanding now about them. Uh, I think behavioral addictions are still in their infancy as well in terms of people still uh, using a moralistic model and saying, hey, why don't you just stop, like just control yourself. And we still say that and do that with, with food as well, even though we have these you know, high fat, high sugar, uh, high salt, delicious, palatable foods that are you know, hitting your um, your brain in a way like a pop tart that you know uh, that would never turn up in nature that level of fat and and sugar and um, and salt. Um, so I think we we still have a long way to go there as well. But I I love uh, thinking and, and looking at the food literature as well because as individuals we're we're all affected by food, we need it to survive, uh, which is a huge difference, obviously, with substance use disorders. But, but um, 
because of that, we've all encountered issues with food or, or most of us have in feeling sometimes, you know, slightly controlled by food that like noticing, you know, I can't focus on a conversation because I'm so hungry or I see they're eating on TV, they're eating this and I want that too. And, um, and you know, and many times overeating and, and yeah, noticing the, the draw of different cues and our lack of control around food cues sometimes too. So uh, it's an interesting way uh, to, to think about um, our, our, um, our motivations and our abilities to uh, control impulses. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned a great point there where everybody has to eat. So it, it leads perfectly to what I wanted to ask you was, how can you actually diagnose binge eating disorder? So where on that spectrum is the threshold uh, would you say, and are there any challenges that you face in diagnosing binge eating disorder? So binge eating disorder is actually recognized by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as, a, as an eating disorder. And so there are very specific criteria related to it. Uh, for example, um, you know, eating more food than originally intended. Uh, and what's important is as I mentioned, we all tend to overeat at, at different times, like, you know, holidays, et cetera. The difference is, is that these are huge amounts of food that would make most people very, very physically uncomfortable. So it's that idea of, of loss of control uh, that's way beyond, you know, eating two or three more cookies, but that's combined with this sense of I can't stop. I, I can't do anything about this. So this sort of disinhibition, well, I ate one cookie. Now I'm going to eat three more boxes of them. Uh, so it's the, it's the loss of control. And then it's combined with shame and hiding behaviors. Um, and so it's, it's not just overeating. It's, it's the, it's the loss of control, which is of course, um, fundamental to substance use disorders as well. So a lot of the criteria are very, very similar. I think some of the differences um, that we see coming up with binge eating disorder that seem to make a, a difference in, in diagnosis is there's, and this speaks to some of the cultural aspects, there's often this overvaluation of weight and shape. So there's this idea, you know what, if I was just if I was thinner, if I had a body like this, I, I would be perfect. You know, I would be more lovable. I'd, you know, I'd be more social. I'd be whatever. So there's this overvaluation of certain features um, that, that tie into to weight and, and shape. And, uh, and that seems to be quite, uh, quite unique to binge eating disorder. But many aspects of impulse control do tend to, to be shared across, um, across many of these disorders. Great, thank you for clarifying that and explaining exactly what binge eating disorders are and how we might go about diagnosing them. So we just wanted to end with a question about sort of the role that students play in your lab. And if you accept undergraduate students, what types of roles do they play? And what do you look for in applicants to your lab, even if it's not undergrad students, perhaps thesis master's students? Yeah, so I, I do accept undergraduate students, graduate students, postdocs. Um, I think what I, what I look for is often on a very basic, excuse me, practical level is a, a minimum one year commitment. 
Uh, and that is just because it takes so long to get integrated into the lab in, in the sense that if you want to do any research, you need to have ethics approval. So to do that, we need to add you to the ethics pro protocol. You need to do training for ethics. Then you need to do training within the lab. That can't be done in two or three months, or at least not easily. So for a student to have a really good experience, and for me as well, to feel that they're, you know, really getting something, there needs to be a, a significant time commitment. Um, then after that, what I try and do is mostly start off students on, on uh, basic aspects of running studies. Um, uh, sometimes it's data entry stuff, uh, making spreadsheets, uh, running participants, recruiting participants. So even though I, you know, I talk about all this research, somebody has to call these 50 participants, schedule them to come in Thursday at one, Friday at two. Da, da, da. There's so many people involved. So a lot of it has to do with recruiting. They're going around to casinos, posting flyers, uh, calling people up, putting stuff at bus stops, going to meetings, recruiting people from the, the eating disorders clinic. Uh, so there's so, so much legwork that needs to be done. And I think if you're interested in research, you need to do all aspects to appreciate what goes into a final paper where you just mention, you know, a few things and not the, you know, all the details and the difficulties of, of getting this together. So understanding that data doesn't just appear, you have to make the people come in and, and, um, run things, start to understand how important it is to be consistent and systematic on running tasks, the, you know, there's safety considerations, there's, um, there's research considerations, so sort of, sort of getting to know all that, and then slowly um, getting more comfortable analyzing data, writing it up, interpreting it, and then presenting it in different ways, whether it's at a poster session, at a conference, or, you know, eventually in a published paper as well. So it takes quite a while, uh, and there's many different phases, but I think, yeah, there needs to be a significant time commitment and willingness that, you know what, if, if this needs to get done to get the study done, we, we will do it. We will, you know, recruit at a mall. Well, these things don't exist right now, <laughs> but yeah, doing, doing what you need to, to make everything come together. Absolutely. But uh, just because uh, we, we've run out of time here, but Dr. Belotis, we want to thank you so much for, for talking to us about your research on uh, substance abuse disorders, non-substance use disorders, um, and also the role of undergrads in your lab, impulse control. It's been an incredible talk to have with you. And we really, really appreciate you coming onto the podcast to, to share your research with us. No, thank you very much. Both of you are, you know, amazing hosts and you've clearly, you know, looked at looked at the research and, and thought of really good questions. So this this was a pleasure.